out of order like uh, originally in our outline we have it uh, the untouchables last crusade and the Psylander. but let's let's just get this Psylander out of the way right now. <laughs> sure okay Does that sound like a plan <laughs> i believe you're tipping your hand as well yes let's do it here's the uh what's that thing that trailer here's the trailer from another time comes a man of great power talk funny nash where are you from lots of different places a warrior of incredible strength you've the devil in you we've been kinsmen 20 years connor mcleod was my kinsman i don't know who you are because you were born different men will fear you try to drive you away man uncertain of his future. What you got here, Brenda, is a guy who's been creeping around since at least 1700. It's not possible. And haunted by his past. Wait a minute, Nash. I want some answers. You cannot die, McLeod. I am Connor McLeod of the Clan McLeod. I was born in 1518 in the village of Glenfinnan on the shores of Loch Shiel. I am immortal. <laughs> A hero who is about to face his greatest challenge. You will always be weaker than I. What can you tell me about a seven-foot lunatic hacking away with a broadsword at one o'clock in the morning in New York City, 1985? Not much. For he is not alone. In the end... <laughs> There can be only one. Highlander, there can be only one. There can be only one. That was pretty good. Thank you. Christopher Lambert. Lambert. Is that his name? Lambert. Lambert. He is French, right? I don't know. 
<laughs> they, didn't even he, well, they, they mentioned that in this movie of um he he talks real funny like you yeah. never know where he's from no kidding he has that very distinct accent that kind of works when he's playing raiden and stuff in the mortal Kombat movies it's like right where is this guy from i did he can't uh, be from this world i forgot i forgot i did look it up and he he's born on long island new york but then he moved to where like when he was two his parents moved him to somewhere in Europe. I don't know where. That's hmm. as far as I got. I was like, oh, he's from Long Island. Let's see. And then they moved to Switzerland. And and he did a lot of French work in French movies. So he must have spoke French. That's why hmm. he's got like a weird yeah. accent, I think. You know what I mean? You got Long Island, Switzerland, and French in you. That's going to be a, a very unique accent. Okay. Well, uh, did did we? Okay. Yeah, that is one of the facts. We'll get to that in a second. Okay. okay. Any, right. Anyway. Anyway, uh, the rundown: an immortal Scottish swordsman must confront the last of his immortal opponents, a murderously brutal barbarian who lusts for the fabled prize. Prize. Yes. That, does it even make sense? I suppose if you've seen this movie. This whole movie um, doesn't make sense, but let's get to the... It's a bunch of immortals that have to cut each other's heads off to yeah. get lightning bolts. Let's do the uh, facts first. Not the fun mm. facts. They're just listed as facts here. Okay. This first one is really good. It's a fun I, fact? I enjoyed, I enjoyed this. Okay. Yes. I didn't... Oh, okay. Yeah, I remember. Okay. I did read this ahead of time. The opening mm. shot sweeping through the stadium was accomplished using a computerized system that held the camera on four wires. The system was invented by the inventor. The system was invented by the inventor of the Steadicam stabilizing camera system, Garrett Brown. Yeah, that okay. was really neat because I turned this movie on and it starts at a at Madison Square Garden. There's mm-hmm. a pro wrestling match. And, uh, you know, there's just shots of all the crowd and everything, the wrestlers. And then all of a sudden there's this there's this overhead shot. That goes uh, over the ring, over the audience, and up into the top uh, seating section there where we see uh, Christopher Lambert there. Lambert. 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 (laughs) And as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, you know, that was a really cool shot. It actually looked like a drone shot. Yeah. It's like there's no way. This movie was made in 1986. It must have been some sort of a crane setup. But I could have swore it went over people's heads where, it, and it went such a distance that it couldn't possibly have been a crane. So I went back and I rewatched it. And yeah, I was just fixated on how did they get that shot. And I'm glad this appeared in the, the facts there because it, it was impressive. Yeah, it was a cool shot. It was probably the best thing about the movie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it was the only part I watched twice. Uh, the filmmakers were shocked to find out after signing a contract for Christopher Lambert to play Connor McLeod that he spoke absolutely no English. Well, and that that <laughs> is kind of interesting there because I read a little bit more, and it said he worked with a guy who um, helped him devise this accent that made him sound as if he weren't from anywhere in particular. So I guess in learning that for this film to to create an accent for his character who was supposed to be from, you know, a guy who bounced around. He ended up creating this accent that he spoke with naturally. Hmm. That just makes him sound like he's from from Weirdo Land. So he wasn't Scottish? He's not supposed to be Scottish? I guess he he did 
Well, it, it's more that he's Scottish, but since he is immortal, he's been living for hundreds of years, that he would have oh. traveled to all these different yeah, places, yeah. and that yeah. his, his speaking voice would be a mix of all the different places in, he's in been. In modern time, in the modern time, right? Yes. Okay, yes. but that doesn't make any sense in the Scottish time, because that's where he first learns of all of his well, immortality yeah. and all that. So oh, anyway, that's because the guy didn't speak English. <laughs> yeah, so it's stupid. This movie's dumb. Um, uh, here's my take on it. Uh, I don't. Uh, I, I always say like I don't need a lot of backstory for for films. I don't need to know who Peter Venkman's parents are for me to enjoy Ghostbusters. I don't need to know what hijinks he got into in high school and all that. All that stuff is just. It, it doesn't add anything to the movie Ghostbusters. But there is a balance there, uh, and and. You know, like, for instance, in Star Wars, I'm just talking Star Wars, not the whole thing, but the movie, A New Hope. It's important that you know a little bit of Luke's background uh, in order to invest you into into the character, because that's that's how the movie works. And this movie is like as if, if it started where Luke Skywalker ran into Obi-Wan Kenobi, and Obi-Wan Kenobi just started showing him stuff, and they never explained the Force. Or where Luke had come from, or anything. Mm, Does that make yeah. sense? I suppose. Yeah, because um, I, I, like, I tur- okay, go ahead. Oh, I turned it off after forty minutes. I oh, didn't watch, did you watch the whole thing? <laughs> you bastard! I sat um, through the whole I rem- thing. I remember watching this, as, you know, in my teens or whatever. So I guess at the point uh, where I turned it off, it, it was starting his training. Um. So okay. uh, Connery uh, is the Obi-Wan character. Yeah. He meets up with uh, Connor and explains to him why he uh, isn't dead. And then yeah. it's, it's, the movie is constantly cutting between the past and the present. So the whole thing doesn't uh, make any sense. Let's just, get, it, let, yeah, let's just talk about like, the, the immortals themselves. Okay? So there are, there's this group of immortals on the planet Earth. And eventually they all have to kill each other so there will be only one immortal left on the planet Earth and they will they will win a prize. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't make any sense because well, the only way to kill each other is to take take each other's heads off, right? So yep. that that's the only way they can die. So he mm-hmm. uh, so the one immortal is like this bad guy. I can't remember, even remember his name, but he's like the the main villain, the, the antagonist in this movie. And uh, he gets into a war with the Highlanders' village, and he's, like, telling all the guys in the war, like, hey, you stay away from this guy because I, I want this guy. This guy's mine. And he just stabs him. He doesn't cut his head off. And this guy doesn't even know, he's, like, he's a He's about to. He, was, he stabbed him, and then he did the there can be only one. He had his sword up, and he was about to chop his head off. But then Connor's buddies uh, tackled him, so he wasn't able to. Yeah, but why would he give up? Like, it. oh, I guess he went into hiding after that. Was that the deal? I guess because uh, they needed the ta- to come into modern times. You you can I didn't like that. You at can all. try to figure out why why things are happening, but it's, it's just, just because it makes no sense. Yeah, it's a bad movie. I mean, That's I, why it, it, it was lost on me in the beginning. Right after that wrestling match, uh, Connor McLeod he walks down into the parking garage. And he's walking um, past all the cars and the pillars, you know, that are supporting the the, the upper the level structure. Yeah, and yeah, and then somebody comes out and attacks him, and they have a sword fight. But the way they shoot it, 
is he's walking. You know, the camera's behind him. We're we're following Connor. He's walking, and he's walking forward. And then the other guy walks out behind him. Yeah, where did he come from? <laughs> Me- meaning he had just walked there and would have seen him. Right. Uh, but then it's like, oh, where did you come from? Right. There are so many moments like that in the direction that uh, it just makes the movie fall apart because yeah. you're constantly being taken out of it. And then the, the guy he's fighting is, he's like an old man, but he's doing these backflips yeah. all through the, the parking garage. Yeah. It's just... And it makes, uh, well, in that scene too, like you see that uh, the cars are from the 70s and this movie came out in like 85-ish I think all the cars yeah. are, are way too old to for for that era and you're just I, I was just thinking to myself yeah, all these cars are going to get destroyed exactly <laughs> you know because yeah, they're, yeah, they're clunkers that they just wheeled in for this scene to be destroyed they sure know how to blow up a car in this movie though <laughs> for sure um, yeah they don't explain anything though. so it doesn't make any sense why then Shrunk like this movie jumps Back and forth, between, like back into Scotland in the 1300s, I think, and then into modern times of the 80s. And uh, back in the 1300s um, in Scotland, uh, Sean Connery decides, because he's an immortal as well, and he decides that he's going to train Christopher Lambert, the Highlander, to, you know, and prepare him for, you know, the fact that people are going to be coming to him to take his head off. But it doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't Sean Connery? Why would he train him? Why wouldn't he take his head off? Yeah, it's uh, there's too many things, and you know, this is the high point of this this uh, series. Franchise. I know they kept they <laughs> yeah. just kept making more TV shows and more movies, and and everything got worse than this. Yeah. Um, part two, I believe, is considered one of the worst movies of all time, just really? in general. It was so bad. Um, I here here is what I was thinking as I was watching. This movie would be a lot more interesting if you forget about the present time and you just focus on him uh, back in his Scottish village and the basic premise they set up. Um, he's born into this clan. They have a war with these barbarians. He gets killed. They bring him back uh, like severely wounded. And then he suddenly recovers and everyone's trying to figure out like what's going on. Cause that, that was kind of interesting to me of how he was stabbed and then he recovers and then all of his clansmen kind of turn on him like, they think he's possessed by the devil or something mm. and he gets banished from his village. So if the whole movie were just um, get to know him and his character in the village, you know, establish a few relationships there and, and their bond, talk about this war with this other village and then maybe 30 minutes in, they have a battle, he gets killed uh, and then he comes back to life and everyone's like back in this oldie time. They're like, oh, you have the devil in you. Let's burn him. Let's banish him and all that. And then the the movie is about him trying to figure out why am I still alive? What's going on? And then he meets up with um, Ramirez after a certain amount of time. That's the the Connery character, and they realize for some reason some people aren't dying. They're they're just immortal for some reason that's unknown. And the rest of the movie is them trying to figure it out and cope with it. And they always move to a new place, but the people they care about start dying, and they're still living. And, you know, what's going on? Are we cursed? And maybe you don't get a clear answer, but you could have a little character piece there. Basically, you just got to get rid of the whole sword fight and cut people's heads off part of this movie. And maybe it could be more interesting. Maybe. I don't know. The whole thing, yeah, just to make any sense. And Sean Connery is supposed to be... So first he says he's from Spain. And then it turns out that he's not from Spain. He's actually Egyptian. But he has a Scottish accent. 
And I thought he was Scottish. Like when <laughs> yeah, he came he in, he has the Sean Connery accent. Yeah, and he, when he said that he was, um, you know, from Spain, I thought he meant like he was working from Spain. But he's Scottish, but he was working from Spain, even though they put some brown makeup on him. And I thought, well, maybe he's got a tan. Maybe he was down in the sunny parts of Spain or something. But then no, he's Egyptian. I don't know. The whole thing just doesn't make any sense. It's very. Uh, it's a very eighties film towards the, the last half that, that you missed. Um, it take like they get into Halloween and people are dressed in Halloween costumes. And so there's like a lot of visual style this, that maybe that's what people enjoy about this movie. Um, you know, I, I did enjoy everything outside of the main character and the plot. Uh, when they were in the 80s time, the atmosphere of like that 1980s, yeah. that's, you know, they had the um, kind of the the jerk cop who's interrogating him. You had the officer, like when they find the body in the parking lot, he accidentally steps on him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, little little touches of the atmosphere there were great. It's just there was nothing interesting for them to do. It was just a fun 1980s setting, but not much more than that. Did you make it to the uh, to Alan North? In the first 40 minutes? Um, I was going to turn it off after half an hour. And then I realized Sean Connery hadn't appeared yet. I'm like, <laughs> all right, we're doing this thing. So let me hold out till he gets here. Yeah. He shows up and that scene lasted all of 30 seconds. So I waited until the second Sean Connery scene. And I was like, all right, I'm done. So you didn't even see Alan North? I don't believe so. Oh, that's too bad. It's it's funny because you watch because I've been watching so much Police Squad recently. Like I'm just waiting for like every time he would say something because he's playing the exact same character. He's a, <laughs> he's a police uh, the the police chief basically, and every time he he'd say a line, I was just waiting for the joke to to come next or something, some sort of. Uh, or well, something. no, I did get a bit of him. He was in the parking lot. He must have been at the beginning somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he, I got a little bit of him, I suppose. I, I was so yeah, disinterested. Very it's, you know, and as, I'll, I'll give it this. I'll give it this. As much as I complain about The Wedding Singer, I made it through that movie. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I remember, like, when I first saw this in the 90s at some point, because people were talking about The Highlander, and it was this great 80s film that I hadn't seen yet, so I watched it, and I... I I remember not liking it, but it, I thought it might have been because I was tired. You know, a lot of times you start these movies late at night and you just you end up not You don't get it tired. for some reason. Yeah, for whatever reason. Time. And so I was really, like, I was looking forward to getting back to this and hoping that it would be a, a franchise that I could get into. Like, I was always confused about the franchise, too. Like, we used to run at, at this old job. I had uh, this television station I worked at. We ran the Highlander and we ran the Highlander, the Raven. And the series completely confused to me. Like, I had no idea what was going on. And after watching this movie, I'm even more confused now. I thought I would get some answers, but it's just, it's even more out there. Anyways, let's move on. Yeah, I, I don't want to. Talk uh, I was going to say something, but I can't. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> imagine want what it was. We talked about it for 20 minutes. It's enough. Yeah. Yeah. There, okay. Watch it if you if if you want. I don't know why you'd want. Let's talk about better movies. No, I think the only thing I can take away from this is um, when you see uh, uh, Christopher Lambert in the trench coat with that kind of look he's got in his eyes. He looks like a cool character. It looks like it's going to be fun. There, it's it, like there's a lot of visual in this movie, especially towards the the latter half. They spend more time in New York City. The the bad guy he he was. 
Sean Connery nips him in the throat uh, back in the Scotland days. So he's walking around New York now with like this scar on his neck. And uh, mm. for Halloween, he dressed up as like this. I don't know why he dressed up for Halloween. I, I, that doesn't make any sense. But he dressed up as a punk rocker guy and he put um, uh, like um, what are those bo- bobby pins or not bobby pins. Uh, those uh, Safety pins? Yeah, safety pins. He put them in his neck to make it look like the safety pins were holding his neck on through his scar. So it's those kind of things, those kind of visual things that I think that people take away from this kind of movie. And, yeah. You know. I, I suppose it could be one of those movies people just enjoy laughing at or it, it, it might be like a party movie. You put it on, you don't really pay attention to it too much. You're just talking, having fun with your friends, and then this movie is on, so by association you think it's a fun I guess. movie. Yeah. Or, anyways they should they get scars huh they don't heal like wolverine well i'm guessing yeah i'm guessing so because see that guy's been stabbed so many times so if he he, you never see him with his shirt off so i'm guessing there's scars under there or because it was a neck injury maybe that's why he got scarred and the neck is their sensitive area right yeah Yeah. anyways there you go highlander done let's go Indiana Jones. Hey, yeah, Indiana Jones. Let's talk about the last a good movie. crusade. All right. We're about to complete a great quest. The Holy Grail, Dr. Jones. Oh, rats. <laughs> this is it. Look, the shield is the second marker. We found it. Indiana Jones is on the quest of a lifetime. <laughs> But for some adventures, one Jones is not enough. Dad? Junior? Don't call me that, please. Follow me! I know the way! Ah! A race across three continents. And in this sort of race, there's no silver medal for finishing second. Hang on, Dad! We're going in! Into the homeland of the enemy. Nazis. I hate these guys. Our situation has not improved. In his search for the Holy Grail. How dare you kiss me? Are you crazy? Don't go between them! Go between them! Are you crazy? Where's my father? In the belly of that steel beast. Dad! Junior! You call this archaeology? The quest for the grail is not archaeology. It's a race against evil. Germany has declared war on the Jones boys. Those people are trying to kill us. I know, Dad! It's a new experience for me happens to me all the time indiana jones and the last crusade have the adventure of your life keeping up with the joneses you want to take care of the rundown sure and here's the rundown in 1938 after his father professor harry jones senior goes missing while pursuing henry Henry. isn't that what i said i thought you said harry i thought i said henry say it again henry (laughs) henry Mm -hmm. all right 
1938, after his father, Professor Henry Jones Sr., goes missing while pursuing the Holy Grail, Indiana Jones finds himself up against Adolf Hitler's Nazis, again to stop them from obtaining its powers. Some fun facts. 2,000 rats were bred for the production. They had to be bred specially, as ordinary rats would have been riddled with disease. Can you imagine someone going around, though, trying to... Like, I, I need to capture all these rats for this movie. Like, Yeah. <laughs> who who uh, get that You find a couple of healthy rats, and you stick them in the corner in the somewhere, it, and yeah. then suddenly you got uh, 2,000 rats. Yeah. For the scene at the Nazi rally in Berlin, where Indiana... Harrison Ford confronts Elsa, Allison Duty, 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 uh, and steals back the diary. Steven Spielberg had all the extras who did the Nazi salute simultaneously put their other arms behind their back and cross their fingers. As you should. All right. Uh, most of the uniforms worn by the Nazis in Berlin, burning book, book, burn, burn. <laughs> most of the uniforms worn by the Nazis in the Berlin book, burning scene were authentic World War II uniforms, not the replicas. A cache of old uniforms was found in Germany and obtained by costume designer Anthony Powell to be used in the film. They were like real Nazis. Real Nazi uniforms. Yeah. Sean Connery and Harrison Ford wore no trousers during the shooting of the entire Zeppelin sequence, mainly because it was filmed in a very hot studio and Connery didn't want to sweat too much. Mm. That's fair. Steven Spielberg is on record saying he made the film for two reasons. One, to fulfill a three-picture obligation he had made with George Lucas. And two, to atone for the criticism that he received for the previous installment, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Yeah, A lot of people complain about that one these days. I still complain <clears throat> about that one these days. I loved it as a kid, yeah. but yeah, to watch it now, it's, it's just that Kate Capshaw, the, the, too much yelling. Uh, I suppose it's still my favorite. I don't. And then the whole like the raft falling from the plane and uh, they that's it. Oh, there there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, things in this movie that that you gotta like. Whoa, that just happened. Not that bad. Not 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 to to the extent of how it happens. It's a fun serial adventure. It is fun. It's not meant to be serious. But it is fun outweighs the logic. No, it's the weakest. The weakest. And and uh, it's funny that uh, uh, Spielberg says to fulfill his three pitcher obligation he made with Lucas because I was watching a little bit of extras there on the entire Indiana Jones series, the the three movies. I don't know about that fourth one. It doesn't exist. But um, it's funny. Every time he talks, every time Spielberg would talk about Lucas, it was like he, like Lucas had brought him some idea and begrudgingly Steven Spielberg would have to take the idea and turn it into a good idea. <laughs> like for, uh, for this movie, he said like, uh, so Lucas really wanted Indiana Jones to uh, get to the, uh, to find the Holy Grail. And Spielberg's like, well, that's not really an interesting thing to get because it's a static object. Like, it doesn't do anything. But Lucas was insistent that, no, it has to be, it has to be the Holy Grail. So then Spielberg came up with the whole, um, you know, that, you, you uh, what was it, like the Fountain of... You, or, fountain of Youth, youth. yeah, Eternal yeah, like Life. Eternal Life, that's it. So he came up with that, the Eternal Life and uh, the whole thing that it's in this area and you can't leave and all that stuff. So that was all Spielberg, but it was just funny how... 
It's just like he says it in a really nice way, but if you just read between the lines, he's like, "Man, Lucas comes up with these dumb ideas, and I got to turn him around." That's something good. <laughs> All right, last fun. Couldn't fact. turn him down at that point. He was the guy who made Star Wars. Yeah, you got to go. He's giving me wow. these. Wow, he was contract suggested. He was under contract. He had to make a third film. Uh, oh, and the dad thing too. Spielberg put in the whole dad spin. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, there is a fan theory that Indiana's adventures are merely a series of dreams that Han Solo is having while frozen in carbonite. Uh, that's because fans are assholes, and that is just an asshole yeah. idea. What a dumb yeah. idea. Well, there, there are a bunch of Star Wars references uh, peppered in over the, the films. Yeah. Isn't so there, isn't, uh, in Raiders, isn't there like one of the... Uh, one of the uh, like hieroglyphs is yeah, uh, R2 and, and in um, Temple of Doom, it's the Obi Wan Cafe that they're in at the beginning. Um, there's a couple of things. Yeah. Anyways, I'm, I'm imagining you enjoyed the Last Crusade, Richard. So tell us about how you uh, enjoyed it. Well, um, I'll say this: uh, as a kid, this was my least favorite of the three Indiana Jones movies, mostly because uh, it felt like it was being recycled because we had the Nazis in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and there was going after uh, like a holy Christian artifact. Mm. Um, and then Temple of Doom is like, okay, completely different religion, completely different artifact, completely different uh, antagonists. And, you know, it was just like another, there's Indy going on another adventure. Um, and then when this one came around, I just felt like, well, we're doing the Nazi thing again. It just, it's kind of the same thing I, I was hoping that we'd get a different you know adventure again if you had taken something like the russians and and you know yeah. put that into it and maybe he could have even went after like a ufo or something that would have been kind of interesting if it had been done properly but <clears throat> i thought it was just a little more of the same uh it's a good film it, it's a fine film uh i i still prefer uh, Temple of Doom, just because that's the one I watched as a kid. And as much as people complain about the darkness, I, I thought that was kind of fun. Um, but yeah, this this is a great movie. Um, I, I can sit down and, and watch it beginning to end. There are a ton of memorable scenes. Uh, I think the relationship between uh, Harrison Ford and Sean Connery works really well, where you can buy that they are a father and son that had a, a rough patch. Yeah, they didn't go so far as to make it that they hate each other or, you know, they're completely on non-speaking terms. They just say they haven't spoken much, you know, in the past 20 years right. because Connery is, is busy with his work and Indiana Jones, he went off and, you know, made his own life and, and did his own thing. Uh, and, and that relationship was perfect. You know, there, there were no complaints there. You got great supporting characters like uh, Marcus and um, uh, what's the other guy's name, Sala, mm-hmm. the John Reese Davis, who came back from the original. Um, again, that that's why it kind of felt a little similar. Uh, they just uh, a few of the same people again, but uh, I don't know. It, the, the entire thing is fun. Um, great action scenes. Some some good bits of comedy. Uh, Harrison Ford is uh, up there with uh, Jonathan Frakes as having a very distinct smile that, that gets right to your center. Okay. Whenever, um, when Indiana Jones would kind of screw up and then have that stupid grin on his face, like when, when his dad is saying, oh, you think he was stupid enough to bring the book back here? It's just uh, lights you up. And I get the same feeling whenever Riker is happy on the Enterprise. And, you know, he's watching Picard do his thing to get that Riker grin. Ah, works wonderfully. 
great film. I enjoy it. I recommend it. And then it was a perfect ending to Indiana Jones's character. Yeah. Them riding off in the sunset. Don't need to say anything else. It's done. Nope. I agree. And um, you get the even even some of the sorry, even some of the things that would be kind of annoying in if they're done improperly, uh, like how they explain his character traits uh, in this movie. You get to see the origin of the whip and the hat and the costume and the name. And it's it's peppered in there just enough where mm. it's not heavy handed and it doesn't feel like, OK, we got to see how this started. We got to see how this started because they do that in a lot of films now when they do the reboots uh, or the, the sequels coming up later where they explain where every little detail came from. Mm-hmm. It was kind of done in a fun way here. So Well, and plus this was supposed to be the final film, right? So, yes. yeah, you yes. know, put everything at the start for the fans. It was a little, I mean, it was, I, I, I they explained everything within that little, like where he got the hat, yeah. where he got the coat. The where the, and all that. The yeah. scar on his chin. Uh, you know, it was just, it was a little, but... It was done very quickly. It wasn't, you know, drawn out like it would be today. Like, can you imagine if this movie was made today, that first five minutes or ten minutes would have been the whole movie? Well, also, um, it was done with a lot of comedy, very tongue-in-cheek. And I think the problem where other films do it is it becomes this this holy moment of, look, this is where this happened. Oh, there's some big significance to it. This was just like a random encounter and, and, you know, a kid uh, getting ideas. You know, it was like, oh, that that would be a cool hat. You know, I I should dress like that. Right. It was treated as as an insignificant moment that this person in reality wouldn't think would affect them later in life kind of thing, you know, or whatever. Like it was just moved on to the next thing, but. Yeah, yeah, it's, it would have been really dragged out today. Anyways, uh, yeah, I love this movie. I, I see, I've seen the Indiana Jones movies out of order. The first one I saw was uh, Temple of Doom, and then I saw this Last Crusade, and I didn't see Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think until the mid '90s or something like that. It was just one of those movies that I didn't get to, or it, you know, like I would see on TV all the time the iconic, you know, moving the the statue with the the bag of sand and the big ball coming down. And that was just, you know, mm-hmm. parodied so many times, even in UHF. Um, I, th- I think I saw, I'm pretty sure I saw UHF, like the whole UHF opening before I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. I had no idea that he was totally aping that movie. Um, and the, then the joke in Temple of Doom where he doesn't have the gun, you know, I thought it was yeah. a funny scene, but when I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, I was like, oh, that's, oh, okay, that's connection there so anyways i saw uh I, i've always had you know last crusades felt like a like now that you mention it it does kind of seem like a a rehash of that that first movie but yeah it's just it's so fun you know it's just a fun because yeah, fun film as i was watching it, i noticed there were some little things little things like uh right after he and his father escape they're like um they have to go meet up with marcus brody in one spot but uh, his diary, you know, the, yeah. the thing they've been looking after this whole movie, that goes back to Berlin. So I was like, oh, we got to go to Berlin. We got to find my diary. He's like, oh, I don't go there. All right, let's go. Uh, and then they go there, and in a matter of seconds, it's like, okay, we're in the right spot. Um, oh, there she is. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> I'll just go get it from her. In the huge There's city, no, like, like where do we look or yeah. anything like that. It's just we meet up with everybody, get a, a Hitler's autograph, and then uh, be on our way. I, that's for the uh, sake so, of pacing, so th- I'd there's, say. 
Yeah. So yeah. for the sake of pacing, there are those coincidences where like, all right, we can just get this done. And there's a lot of that in the movie. But because you're having fun and it's just a, a silly adventure movie, uh, it's like, fine, fair game. You know, let's move to the next fun scene because yeah. I'm, I'm having a good time on this ride. I, and I think a, a, a Spielberg's directing was really well done in this movie. Like, there's just like a few little scenes, little things that he would add. Um, for instance, when they're stuck in the um, in the room, they're tied to that chair, and then the uh, you know the fire starts, you know, uh, and, and they start getting engulfed in flames. And yeah. as that's happening, uh, they you know that this one Nazi guy didn't have permission to kill them yet. Because they didn't know where the the book was, and they might need Indiana Jones and his dad, you know, for, in case there was some info in the book that they could extract from these two. And then they find a, a lead. They, oh, they got the book. They know where the guy who has the book is, and we're going to get the book. So then he gets permission to to kill uh, Indiana Jones and his dad. So as he's walking back with the the soldiers to him, and they're in the chairs and they're wrestling back and forth, and it goes back and forth between that. And to this Nazi who's walking towards the room, and every time they would go to to shoot that, every time like you'd see that guy, he would have his gun drawn, you know, and pointed towards the camera as he's walking towards the room. And it makes no sense why he would have his gun drawn, you know, like he would wait till he got to the room, draw his gun, and then shoot them, right? But it's right. that it's that just that visual thing, like here's the incoming danger kind of thing. He's got his gun out. He's like as soon as he opens that door, they're gonna get shot. So that adds a lot of tension to the scene. You know, that adds even more that they need to get through this. They need to get out of there. Um, yeah, I think he, he works a lot on the subconscious level yeah. of we, we need to establish certain things. You know, it might not work logically, but with the pace that we're going with, you know, we got to keep the momentum going. And that's the fastest, most effective way to do it. Um, I, I noticed that at the beginning also when uh, it's the young Indy, River Phoenix, um, he's, he stole the, the cross from the guys who were excavating it. Right. And he's on top of this ledge. He whistles, his horse comes up, and then he jumps down to get away. The bad guys come up, and then they whistle, and then instead of a horse, a couple of cars <laughs> pull up. Now, I think uh, if the horse scene weren't there, the car thing would have looked totally silly. Right. Because it only works as a joke. So it's, you know, he knows he has to get, uh, you know, the, the the horse thing done. And then it makes it a little easier to buy the, the car thing. Of course, it works in collaboration as a joke. But it's like you, you need to soften the blow a little bit. Right. By doing it with the horse, it makes it a little easier. So, I don't know. There, there's a lot of things like that where... Um, it, it, the movie goes so quickly, but just having a couple of, of little things, he, he's always got his characters placed in, in kind of a convenient position. Um, even at the ending when, when they're in the, um, uh, the crescent moon temple, whatever it was. Um, I think after he comes back with a cup, I'm sorry, we're doing spoilers. Who hasn't seen yeah, this movie? Spoilers. Uh, and, Get ready. And he's, uh, you know, healing his father with it. There, there's a whole like dozen or so soldiers that are all standing around with guns pointed on them, but none of them do anything. No, nobody reacts or anything because we need that moment, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's it just kind of like there are times where you can conveniently forget that other people are there, 
Yeah, they, and, and just let the scene play out. And then after we've had that nice scene where we get our close-ups and everything, then all the soldiers like run out in fear. They right. don't do it like while it's happening. <laughs> right. you get, like let let the scene finish. Yeah, we gotta have our our good uh, Connery and and forward moment here. Yeah. Okay, get rid of the extras. I even like the the subtlety of um, when they were they were chased by the Nazis on the on the motorbike, and it so they you know like they go through this through the scene you know he's on the motorbike and and Sean Connery's in the sidecar and they go by and then all these other Nazis are on bikes chasing them and it flashes to a shot of all the Nazis and now at the same time as they're riding towards them they all reach up and put their eyeglasses yeah. down you know and it's just a subtle little touch like it would make it like that doesn't make any sense they would put their eyeglasses on to keep the dust out of their eyes before they got onto the bike but it's one of those right. scenes where you look at them, you understand that this is a unit, they're all together, they're, you know, in sync kind of thing, and they're coming for you, and it's just a very menacing, uh, neat little scene that, just again, it just plays on your subconscious, you know, if you're not thinking about it, if you're not looking for this stuff, it's just one of those things, you know? Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, just, I, I love those little kind of things that he throws into the, the movies that he used to do anyways in his movies, I, yeah, these these Indiana Jones movies, they're they're like the perfect adventure movies. Yeah. You can say what you will about Temple of Doom, but it has all the same uh, uh benefits. Temple of Doom, it's like a bad ACDC album. It's still great compared to everything else. It's just the <laughs> weaker one. That's all. It's it's yeah, well, it's great, it's yeah, great but movie. The, in terms of adventure, you know, it it got the balance just right where you got your action, you got your comedy, you got your romance. You got a lot of violence in these movies too, but it's it's often dealt with in a very um, a comical way. You know, you think of the big guy getting cut down by the by the propellers of the plane in mm-hmm. Raiders of the Lost Ark, yep. or uh, the other guy on the roller, which I think was the same guy uh, in Temple of Doom, or um, here they're fighting on the tank, um, and and Indy pulls like one of the German pistols, and he right. takes out it's three guys, and then he's like. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's like some some violent it's, deaths and stuff in here, but it's yeah. it's done in a like, hey, hey, this is fun. Yeah, yeah, it's just a a fun movie and, and well written too. Um, the hmm. reveal of when it's revealed to Indiana Jones that his dad is the, the person that's missing on this excavation, and that's what the hook to get him into this thing. If this movie was made today, it would it, it they would just. They would hold back that information until like 40 minutes into the movie. You know, it would be like, oh, Indy, we don't have time to explain to you right now who it is. You just, we just got to go. Get on the plane. Here, give you a bunch of money, whatever it is, you know? Yeah, he'd, he'd break into the room to rescue the guy, and that's when he'd find Yeah, out and then there's like, oh, it's you, Dad, you know, kind of thing. And I'm just, you know, I, it's just so refreshing to see, uh, you know, the movies weren't always as stupid as they are now, you know? Yeah, like the, they yeah. do want they do one of the old cliches, but they do it kind of quickly. They arrive in Venice and they're like, "Oh, where's this uh, doctor we're supposed to meet up?" And Indiana's like, "Well, he's probably around here somewhere." And then it's the reveal that it's a woman, right? right. But it was kind of like, and there there's no like reaction shot of him tugging on his collar, going like, <laughs> "Whoa." It, it's just, you know, kind of quick and Yeah, done. I'm not saying that there's no cliches in the movie. It's just they're well-written cliches. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the, the whole thing is just written so much better than movies are today. It's a good one. One thing I never picked up on in previous viewings, I, I've seen this a few times, but the the Ah Venice joke. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that was cut that, from uh, TV. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, I've, I've watched this movie, um, you know, 
complete a few times, but uh, I just never picked up on it before. Cool. All right. All right. So, yeah. Enjoyed that. Um, is it time to gush about the Untouchables now? Can I? Oh, I'll gush about uh, John Reese Davies. I really like him in these movies. Uh, Solo's a great character, and I yeah. love the uh, newspaper scene. He's like <laughs> going over to Brody. They get confronted by some uh, Nazi guys who are trying to take him into custody, right, right. but uh, but they're not upfront about it. So he's just like run. <laughs> he's yeah, like yeah. fishing off the paper and finally punches him in the face. That's great. But he keeps he, he keeps thinking he's saying his name, right? Was that it? He was like, well, he keeps saying run. Right. He's just saying it under his breath, and he's yeah. laughing through his like run. Yeah. But he doesn't hear it, and he doesn't move. So he's just run, run. That's good. That was good. Good movie. Good send-off to Indiana Jones. Yeah, I don't need any cartoon ants or anything like that. I grew up in a tough neighborhood. Sometimes reputation follows you. Robert De Niro is Al Capone. There is violence in Chicago, of course, but not by me and not by anybody I employ. And I'll tell you why, because it's not good business. Kevin Costner is Elliot Ness. I have sworn to put this man away with any and all legal means at my disposal, and I will do so. Sean Connery is Jimmy Malone. You want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. You just joined the Treasury Department, son. Everybody knows where the booze is. The problem isn't finding it. Let's do some good! The problem is who wants to cross the pond. Somebody messes with me, I'm gonna mess with him. You carry a badge? Yes. Carry a gun. Get your hands in the air! You're all under arrest! You fellas are untouchable. Is that the thing no one can get to you? Hey, everybody can be gotten to. All right, then. Drive him to the station. Anything happens, you shoot first. You understand me? Well, I'll tell you one more thing. You got an all-out price fight, you wait till the fight's over, one guy's left standing, and that's how you know who won. Just tell me, are you being careful? Careful as mice. I want to hurt the man, Malone. I want to start taking the battle to him. I want to hurt Capone. This man can finger Al Capone. This man can put Capone behind bars. Well, what's the matter? Can't you talk with a gun in your mouth? You're not to prove your methods. Yeah? Well, you're not from Chicago. I want you to find this Nancy boy, Elliot Ness. I want him dead. I want his family dead. Pictures presents a Brian De Palma film. I have forsworn myself. I have broken every law I swore to defend. I have become what I beheld, and I am content that I have done right. You got nothing, nothing, and if you were a man, you would have done it now. Never stop fighting till the fight is done. The Untouchables. During the era of prohibition in the United States, federal agent Elliot Ness sets out to stop ruthless Chicago gangster Al Capone and because of rampant corruption, assembles a small hand-picked team to help him. Those are, those are 
That's a rundown. Okay. Fun facts. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for joining us. No problem. Uh, Robert De Niro tracked down Al Capone's original tailors and had them make some identical clothing for the movie. Which included silk underwear. I read that in another one. Really? I got, yeah. You I, never see it, but he did it. I got uh, some more clothing fun facts for this movie that, that's not written here. Um, so there were a ton. I, I just had to pick a handful. Originally, like this movie's shot beautifully. It's just really well, like the colors and everything. I, I, I love in this movie. And there's a lot of detail that you wouldn't even know that's going on in this film. Um, so the, the film of the 80s wasn't as high a quality as they have now. And uh, the uh, a lot of the clothing was very dark because that that was just the style in the in the 30s. So you'd wear like a you know like a suit with pinstripes in it, and if you shot it normally, like with a with normal film, uh, those pinstripes wouldn't show up. So they actually, when they made the clothing with uh, anything that was dark that had like pinstripes or any sort of fine detail, they actually uh, made it so they would uh, stick out. Like it would be like something that would be stuck on top of the the darkness. So when they would shoot it, oh. the pinstripes would show up on the film. Just nice yeah. little details like that that you wouldn't even know, but they do that for you because they wanted this movie to feel authentic. That reminds me. Here's a fun fact about uh, Bill and Ted's bogus journey. Okay. Uh, <laughs> when when Bill and Ted die, they become what uh, spoiler ghosts of themselves. And uh, they're in black and white while the rest of the world is color. And the the easy way to do that is they just painted their faces white and then they made them wear uh, monochrome versions of the clothes that they were wearing. So they're actually just wearing black and white clothing. (laughs) That's hilarious. So they don't have to do like digital effects after any just – well – optical effects back then but yeah they actually wanted to make this movie in black and white but there was just no way the studio was going to uh let them and i don't think brian de palmer really wanted the director of this movie he i don't think he really wanted to make it in black and white Hmm. because he really wanted to make a big hit anyways uh elliot ness and his role in bringing down al capone had been completely forgotten at the time of his death in 1957 no chicago newspaper carried news of his passing in heroic, his. his heroic reputation only began with the post, posthumous. How do you say this? Posthumous, posthumous, posthumous. Did you say publication you of the Untouchables book he had co-written after he died? There you um, go. Co-written with Oscar Fraley and the television series adapted from it. So, uh, yeah, everybody forgot about Elliot Ness. Yeah, that's pretty rough. Yeah. That his local paper. Didn't mention he died. Yeah. You'd think he'd be a folk hero. But uh, it was really the mobsters at the time who were the, the folk heroes. They were the ones they that everyone followed wanted in to the get papers. drunk. <laughs> exactly. George Carlin is the voice in the radio broadcast program to which Ness's family was listening in the living room. I thought that was interesting. I had no idea that was happening. I thought it was an yeah, old... Yeah, I totally uh, missed that. Uh, what was that racist show on that was on the radio? It was two white guys playing. Amos and Andy. That's it. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. I thought it was a clip from Amos and Andy. So I'm gonna have to go back Wasn't and it? listen to that. That's what I thought. You said it was George Carlin here. Yeah, well, that's what it says. But I remember the Amos and Andy thing. Yeah, me so was too. he doing that, or was there another announcer like before or after that? I don't know. Clip? These are your fun facts. 
I, I saw George Carlin's name. Like, oh, he was in that movie. <laughs> okay. Yes, I admit. You, you've seen this movie like a handful of times. I have, but I had no idea there was a George Carlin thing in here. Oh, I, I guess you're a... not a George Carlin fan. Oh, I guess you're not an Untouchables fan. Although he has appeared in well over 60 films and has won numerous film awards during a highly successful career that spanned more than 50 years, his role in this film resulted in Sir Sean Connery's only Academy Award win. It was also his only Academy Award nomination. James Bond doesn't win Academy Awards unless it's like special effects or something like that. Uh, yeah, Connery. He's he's got a reputation as being the you know one of the greats, but he, he's done some garbage films. Oh yeah, for sure. See previous discussion on this um, podcast, Highlander. Yes, but um, this is not one of them. This is a good one. So uh, let me just uh, spoiler alert. I love this movie. Um, this is one of my favorite movies. It might be in my top ten. Uh, this movie uh, introduced me to the whole mobster thing. The whole mobster movie thing. Uh, it introduced me to earlier James Bond films. I grew up with um, Roger Moore as my James Bond, and I would never watch the, that older guy on those older movies. But then after seeing Sean Connery in this movie, I got me into the older James Bond uh, films. And um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I, I just love it. I think it's great. A lot of blood, a lot of guts, a lot of shooting. No guts. Well, no guts, but a lot of blood. And mm. uh, just the way it's shot, there's some really memorable scenes in this movie. Uh, of course, the the iconic one with the baby carriage coming down the stairs, and then uh, the other one with uh, Sean Connery, where where he spoiler alert, where he meets his demise in his uh, apartment. It was very well shot. Uh, the music, I love the music. Actually, yeah, this movie too got me on the whole spaghetti western train too, because the guy who does the music for this movie does the music for uh those um clint eastwood movies uh mm. the uh the man with no name movies and that okay uh so like marconi like i loved the music when i was a kid i just loved the music from this movie and then you know he started looking up like what other movies has this guy done and he's done these spaghetti westerns and then you hear like the good and the bad the ugly theme you know that you know so well and i'm like oh it's the same guy that does did that song and yeah so I don't know. I, I love it. It's great. I could talk about it all day. Um, another fun fact about the clothing, because I know so much about the clothing of this movie for some reason. Uh, so generally, your um, the hats in this movie from the '30s, your uh, fedoras, would be mm-hmm. would have very like long brim, like wide brims over the, over the faces, and that. So mm-hmm. the guy, you know, you'd have to wear your hat. Like the actors, for the most part, would wear. Like if you watch all the old bogey movies and that, they never pull them down, right? They always wear them back so you could see your face. And in this movie, uh, what they did was they actually made the brims smaller. So the actors could still wear the hats down low, but you could still see their face. Mm-hmm. But you'd never know it watching the movie. You'd actually have to look at the hats and put the two hats together to see. Oh, I'm sure there's some historians out there saying those oh, hats yeah, that's, are inaccurate. That's, not, that's, that's too accurate. small. That's not what they look like. Um. Yeah, so anyways, that's what I think of the movie. Richard, what do you think about this movie? How did you enjoy, or how much did you enjoy The Untouchables? Uh, well, I start. we started this with the Silander. Perhaps I should have done something <laughs> similar to the name uh, for here and called it 
The Fun Touchables. Oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah. right on. Ooh, Fun Touchables. It's a good oh, movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, I enjoyed it beginning to end. I, I will admit, though, um, as much as this movie has been hyped up for me, people saying, oh, you got to watch this movie. It's a great movie. It's a great movie. When I watched it, I was expecting something better, like like so the the unattainable. Right. I, I thought there was going to be something great. Yeah. Like the way everyone goes on about this. So I'm watching. I'm like, oh, this it's good, but where's the where's that brilliant thing? And you know, by the by the end of it, I was like, all right, yeah, I totally get it. This is a really great movie. Um, like I said, uh, looks good. Uh, good performances. Um, I. Kevin Costner, he, he's effective. I can't say he's great in this movie. He does his job. There's a lot of movies like that where the main character is, they're, they're kind of just there, but you know, they, do, they do their part and everything else supports them. So it's, it's totally good. Uh, Sean Connery was great in this. Um, I think my favorite moment with him was when they are – uh, they're doing that stakeout up in Canada to, mm-hmm. to catch the the booze trucks uh, going over the bridge, and everyone's in the like in this little house, and they're all nervous and they're looking out the window and they're checking their guns. And mm-hmm. Malone, he's just totally cool. He's walking around. He's like, "Did you check that weapon already? Then leave it alone." Right. There's my Connery, uh, and that that's my favorite part because I'm constantly double and triple checking things i get my bag ready to go out in the day and i'll make sure all right, i got my phone in there i got my keys in there i got everything i'll check it again i'll check it again i'll check it again it's like, oh, i want to be like malone oh i should have said when i saw you at the toucan i should have said stomp your feet to keep you warm <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that was a great moment from him uh towards the end of that scene uh when they were trying to get information out of somebody and he went and he uh I won't spoil this if anyone hasn't seen it, but he he steps outside, uh, and then he is, has a little scene at the window there, mm. and and he watches oh, yes. the reactions yeah. of everybody in the room, yeah, uh, which is which is great. So that whole tell me tell me what is your perspective on the how the Canadians are portrayed in this film? Oh, it's fine. I mean, there are Canadians <laughs> out in Saskatchewan somewhere. It was like the Dudley Do Right crew, right? Yeah, it's fine. It's not the Chicago way. Yeah, um, yeah. That whole the so that they built that cabin for the interrogation scene after they uh, run into uh, Capone's men on the uh, on the bridge. But that scene prior to them confronting them on the bridge that was originally supposed to be done behind a rock uh, in a field, and uh, then they come across the field and they 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 run across the field to this bridge. And the whole thing just wasn't working. Like, it looks stupid. You know, these guys with guns running across a field. So then they decided to actually move that scene into that cabin for the interrogation scene uh, afterwards. And so a lot of that dialogue and everything was just kind of like them just sitting there figuring what, what to do. In the, what would you do in a, ca- in a cabin while you're waiting instead of sitting behind a rock? So, you know, stomp your feet mm-hmm. and all that stuff was just them, you know, making it up as they go kind of thing. And uh, mm. then they uh, decided to come across the field on the horses, which is was a much more effective scene than running across with their with their guns. Yeah, there, there was another uh, great. Uh, I guess it's like a. I want to say it's a naked gun moment in that cabin, where they would pass. Um, they would go from the interior to the exterior, like out on the porch. 
but uh, there was obviously no back of the cabin. Yeah. So the camera would just dolly <laughs> over, like through the wall. Right. Yeah. And to the outside, and it reminded me of when uh, Frank, Frank Drebin would go into the <laughs> laboratory and he yeah. just walk around. Walk the door. around. Yeah, there was no no back on there. Um, what what else? Jeez, uh, there's so much I could say. Let's see. The final product of this movie, like the f- movie that everybody saw, is the exact same that the test audience saw. They didn't have to change anything. Test audience loved the original cut of this film, and that's what made it into theaters. So that's something that doesn't normally happen. Um, I, I have one criticism. Oh, I got. The there's. It's not perfect. It's not a perfect movie. But go ahead. Yeah. Um, every time that Elliot Ness's wife is yes, on screen, that is my problem. She too. is portrayed yes. like this perfect angelic it's, creature. It's a little much. And I kept, I kept expecting like those Disney birds to just flutter around her and yeah. she'll break into some princess song. I get it. I get what they were trying to do with that. I, I mean, you want to make it so Elliot Ness does have a lot to lose by going down this path, right? Because he's going against yeah. the grain of the entire city. Uh, this is a guy who is not only going against, you know, these mobsters and that, but all the corrupt police officers in his department. So he has this wonderful family life that if he just plays the game and takes the cut kind of thing, takes uh, uh, the bribe, then he, him and his family, this perfect life that he has for himself will be fine. So he's got a lot that he's putting up at stake. And I understand it, but I agree. They went a little too far in that direction. It was a little too much. Even the music yeah, was it, everything. It was just, it's a little bit too much. Eskimo they kisses. Turned up the <laughs> schmaltz meter on that. Yeah. yeah. They, if she were a real person, then no problems. I yeah, mean, she's even, just, uh, uh, what, there's this one part where she's making his lunch and she's cutting up like some carrots or something. She just looks up like, oh, this is such a perfect life. You know, I don't have to do anything but make this guy his lunch, you know, kind of thing. It's like, oh. Gag me with the yeah. That, that's Come what on. they do. That's what they do in bad movies when they're about to kill somebody. Right. They, yeah. they, they're like, you see how perfect everything is. Right. And like, you know, the husband goes home to his wonderful family. They have that moment, and then he goes outside, and then the house explodes. Right. You know? right. They, they have to turn it up for that. Yeah. Um. Okay. So this was a this was Brian De Palma's. Uh, he he directed the film, and he wanted this movie to be a huge blockbuster. He had made um, all the movies that he had made prior to this one have been kind of cult hits. He, you know, he did Scarface, but Scarface didn't make money. It lost money. It became a, a cult phenomenon later on, and it's made money since. But at the time, he there was a bunch of movies that he wanted to do, but because he was a great director but didn't have a Hollywood hit, he couldn't make those movies. So he started doing the more commercial stuff. Uh, the movie he did prior to this was, uh, well, a movie I'm sure you have on Blu-ray, uh, or not on Blu-ray, sorry, on Laserdisc, uh, uh, Wise Guys, uh, with uh, Danny DeVito and your your boy, Joe Piscopo. I'm pretty sure you have it. It's in the collection Never somewhere. Uh, which was supposed to be like a blockbuster comedy, but it kind of, it's not a bad movie, but it didn't do too well. So this movie he really wanted, um, he, he didn't need to have stars in uh, in this movie. The studio gave him the okay to say, you know, just cast unknowns because this movie is going to be, it's going to have a big budget and we don't want to spend a lot of money on the actors. So we want you to cast, you know, stars that, you know, no one with a huge Rising name. stars. Yeah. yeah. So that's was your Kevin Costner, um, the, the guy from the, oh, I can't remember his name. 
Uh, Billy Drago, he plays the villain. Andy Garcia was an unknown then. Charles Martin Smith was the guy in um, uh, American Graffiti. He wasn't uh, anybody yet. Um, but because De Palma wanted to make this a huge movie, uh, he got Sean Connery, locked him in for, for Sean Connery's role as uh, Malone. And then for Al Capone, the studio actually hired uh, Bob Hoskins. To play, oh, okay, I read about this, yeah. But Bob Hoskins wasn't. He, I think this was before uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You know, he was like a you know well-known character actor, but he wasn't you know a star by any stretch of the imagination. That's who they hired for it. But the Palma really wanted Robert De Niro because he wanted a huge star in this movie. So he actually, because he knows Robert De Niro, he worked with it like worked with him on prior films, and he got him uh, to okay to be in this movie. He only had him for a short period of time. I think he was only, like, they only shot, like, two or three weeks with him, and that was it. Uh, And when he came back with his figure of what they wanted to pay him, it was, like, it was well over a million dollars. It was a ridiculous amount of money in 1987. I mean, the movie was made in 86, right? Um, And the studio was like, no, we're going to, we already, we got Bob Hoskins. We're not going to use Robert De Niro. We're not paying him this amount of money for, for this role. Uh, but then uh, De Palma pushed for it. He really pushed to have him in this movie. Uh, and then somebody behind the scenes did some of the legwork and actually got him, got the okay to be in this film. The The drawback for that, uh, to have him in this movie, because the studio now paid Robert De Niro his astronomical number to be in this film and paid Bob Hoskins to basically go away, like to not be in this movie. Here's your salary, go away. So the movie was incredibly over budget. And there was supposed to be a scene in the train station where these two trains uh, collided. Uh, and that's where they get the accountant to bust uh, Al Capone. And, but the movie was so over budget that they didn't have room in the budget for this. Plus, they, would needed, you know, they needed trains from the 1920s to be in this, uh, in this scene. And it was just going to cost way too much. So that's where De Palma changed things in the script and changed it to that iconic scene with the baby carriage coming down the stairs. Hmm. The more you know. Yeah. That's, um, uh, necessity is the mother of invention, yeah. as they say. Now, that scene has been uh, accused of being plagiarized from... Uh, it's like this old Swedish or something. I don't know. Some old European movie from the night... Like a silent movie era. Um, I can't remember the guy's name. I should have written it down. But anyways... Uh, it's you can find it on YouTube. You just like I don't know, go on YouTube and type type in "seen the Untouchables ripped off" or whatever. And I mean, it's nothing like the scene in the, in the Untouchables. In the Untouchables, it's an incredible scene, so well paced, everything so well timed. Um, the the score is great in that. Marconi just plays this uh, like baby carriage scene throughout that entire thing. It's a lot of quiet. It's like you know, just a lot of footsteps in that, and a lot like just. Not a lot of action going on. Big, huge buildup to that scene. I love it. It's great. Um, but yeah, you you compare it to that original, whatever one that this movie is accused of ripping off. And it's, I mean, the, the kernel of the idea is there. And De Palma even admits that he took the kernel of the idea from that film uh, and put it into uh, The Untouchables. But I mean, it's like one of those guys that claim that Led Zeppelin ripped them off. And you listen to the original song and it's like, well, Led Zeppelin did you a favor, man, because this original stinks you know it's not 
great by any stretch of the imagination. And Led Zeppelin took that turd and turned it into something amazing. So that's my stance on that. Hmm. Um, and then the, of course the other scene where, you know, through the, through the apartment there, it's called the creeper scene. This is called a, a classic De Palma creeper scene. He has usually has one in uh, most of his films where it's all done in, with one shot um, from the perspective of uh, somebody stalking another person. So there's a killer that's mm-hmm. going through Malone's apartment and trying to find the perfect opportunity to uh, to jump on him. Um, I'm going to get into the spoilers here now. Um, so in that uh, scene, eventually, um, you know, Malone turns the, the tables on this guy that's uh, coming up to him and the, you see the guy for the first time and he's got a knife and Malone pulls a gun on him and that classic line, you never bring a knife to a gunfight and kicks him out of the apartment. Now, when he comes out of the apartment, there's somebody standing there waiting for him with a Tommy gun and shoots him up. That scene, that was the very first time that Sean Connery had to wear squibs, those uh, things that they put under their clothes mm-hmm. to, to explode. Mm-hmm. It was the first time he was yep. like shot in a film. <laughs> And it's crazy, like, the, the amount of career that guy has had and the amount of action movies he's been in. But he's generally been James Bond. James Bond doesn't get shot. So that was the first time he was shot. And when he was shot, he was, like, shot up, like, a crazy amount of times, right? So mm-hmm. the first time that these things start going off, apparently he hated, he hated that whole thing. He hated the whole process. Um, you, if you watch it, there's a lot of dust that comes up and everything. He got a lot of dust in his face and it went in his eyes. They actually had to take him to the hospital to get him checked out. Uh, the first, uh, mm. uh, the first shot, and the first shot apparently wasn't very good. So De Palma had to beg him to do, uh, do that scene again. And the scene that's in the film is the second time that it's, uh, it's done. But I thought that was crazy. That was the first time he was shot on film. Well, he must have learned to like it because uh, you can you can probably just find the clip of it online of Highlander Two. He's in High- Sean Connery's in Highlander Two. Apparently, he and uh, Christopher Lambert really yeah. hit it off. And he was like, yeah, you got to come back for Highlander 2. Okay, I'll do it for but you, buddy. The, but he's dead. His head's dropped off. What? <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> um, these movies make no sense. But I, just you talking about the squibs right now made me remember a scene from that movie. And there, there were a lot of squibs. All and right. I believe it was Sean Connery. I don't right. think it was a stunt double. I guess he liked it. Uh, the scene, the the old scene from the silent era, it's, I did write it down. It's the Potemkin scene from, Potemkin, it's the guy who did it. It's the Odessa scene. So go ahead and look that up on YouTube. And you compare that to the Untouchables. I don't think anyone's arguing you right now. It's just annoying. I hear it all the time. <laughs> There's this, like, this one guy I used to work with. Like I'd say, oh, I love the Untouchables. Oh, they ripped off that scene from... Potemkin and the Odessa scene and all that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And I watched this thing and it was like, it's just this piece of shit. Like, I mean, it's fine. It's fine. It's, it's a random fact that people will hear uh, and then they like me. to sound big it's, by saying, oh, yeah. I know that they did this and blah, blah. I've never seen that movie. No, no, never, or who, no one can sit through that thing. It's like four hours long and it's like this one little scene in this movie that's just... And it's so hammy and over the top. It's like, you know, the, the thing starts going down the, the stairs and the woman's like, oh, my goodness. Like the whole reaction, right? Because it's over How the top. How cool was Andy Garcia? Andy Garcia the was bottom the, of the coolest, steps. man. And he had him. In that baby carriage. Hey, he had the gun out. You got him? Yeah. Yeah, I got yeah. him. Starts counting. Yeah. So so good. Oh, man. 
Um, Charles Martin Smith, he plays Oscar Wallace, the the small, the little guy in that in that film. Um, uh, the accountant, the, accountant right? the guy who catches him on the tax evasions. Who a lot of the characters in this movies were derived from several different people um, in, in reality and from the book. Uh, no, nobody was really a fan of the TV show. This was like a an '80s reboot where the original was outdated, so they updated it. That in Hollywood, that's when you need to do a reboot when the original is outdated. If the original is not outdated, there's no point in doing a reboot. Um, like uh, Batman '89 or Ghostbusters. But um, George uh, Oscar Wallace was uh, that character was based on um, one person, the person who actually caught uh, Capone on the uh, tax evasion. And um, there's a buildup uh, in the movie to uh, spoiler again, where uh, he dies. Um, and he, uh, De Palmer, wanted to make very sure that the audience was always laughing along with Oscar Wallace um, right up to until the point where he dies, because he wanted that like really dramatic thing, right? Like nothing's ever going to happen to this guy. Cause he's always, you know, and he plays like, you know, how he plays is like, he's an accountant who's stuck behind the desk and he's kind of thrown into this situation and he's just having fun. Right. Yeah. The first time they hand him a shotgun, he's like, all right. Yeah. And, uh, even, um, you know, when they, when they, when they first do that, uh, uh, run on the, on the bridge, you know, and he's just running around, like he's shooting up the bad guys, having fun. And it was all very intentional, so it's so you build up for that uh, that one scene. Uh, I know I'm kind of jumping all over the place, but uh, I was just taking notes as I was watching the movie. Another good, uh, excellent um, job with the the score was that first time where the Untouchables get together, and uh, they this is where they decide that they're going to go over the the hump. They're going to go and they're going to start taking on these mobsters, and. Um, they go into uh, this the first place that they bust, right? And you know they uh, knock down the post door, office, right? Right, and they knock down the door, and they go in the back, and there's all liquor there, and the guy's pissed off because you know they're paid up kind of thing, and they're like, we don't care what who you paid off. This is this is a raid. And during that scene, the music really starts to swell, and what the actors are saying kind of falls behind the score, and that scene almost acts like a montage. You know, and, and the music is kind of like montage music, you know, where you get everything absolutely you need to know for the next for the rest of the movie in this small one little scene. And I just thought it was really well done. If you watch that scene on mute, it's completely different. You know, like if you turn off the audio and you watch it, it just it, it just plays like something is like nothing really that big is going on because they just bust down the door. They walk in with their guns and everyone's under arrest. But with the music going, it just changes that scene uh, completely. That sounds like what we were talking about with uh, Spielberg and how, yeah. you know, there's certain little details that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's done for a certain effect to get the audience to feel or think a certain way. Well, speaking of which, uh, they made a very conscious effort uh, in this movie to, on all the exterior shots, and especially the shot of uh, the stuff inside the um, the train station, to keep as few people in the sh- in the scenes as possible because this was a, the depression era and there wouldn't be a lot of people like walking around going to work and stuff um so they kept it like anytime you were they were outside there wouldn't be a lot of people walking around it'd be very empty streets you would hear a lot of footsteps and echoes and stuff like that because they 
wanted that effect. Again, it was just another thing that was in the background, but they wanted that effect of that this is a big city and it's kind of empty. And that's why the mobsters have a run of the place because there's not mm. a ton going on in the town. Again, it was just like a subtle thing that they throw in the background. Um, uh, the art director, when he was looking at a lot of old photos, because he he lost the, the war on, on getting the movie in black and white. But one thing, other thing that he stressed is that in the 30s, in the 20s and 30s, when you'd look at the, at the streets and cars and that, and all the cars kind of ha- had a very similar look. They all looked like Model Ts, or a lot of them were Model Ts. So he would look at old photos of the streets and that of Chicago, and they would have all these cars would be lined up and parked on an angle uh, down the street. So he replicated that a lot to give, again, it gave like all these scenes depth. Like there's a lot more there. That's just empty. like nothing going on. You just see like repeated Mm -hmm. cars over and over again. And, uh, even that one shot where the, the bad guy, the guy who uh, kills Malone is thrown off the, the, the roof, which is a very cheesy, uh, green screen scene by the way today, but they would be able to do that a lot better today. But anyways, when, uh, Elliot Ness looks down, to see the body, and normally in a film, the body would be right in the middle of the of the shot, um, but they decided to put it off to the the side just to give it that little bit of uneasiness. So it's off to the side, and you see a bunch of cars all stacked up in a row beside him, and he's he's like on the further furthest right. Hmm. It's just one of those things that just you know just gives you that little bit of unease. Lots going on in this movie. I don't know what else I want to talk about. I think well, that's all there's notes. a bunch. Uh, I think you you nailed enough of them there. Uh, this I imagine this is the kind of movie that, upon repeat viewings, you will gain a little bit more. You know, there's so many little things to pick out and to to get from. So I'll, I'll watch this again down the line, and uh, I'll let you know if I have any additional. Uh, things to say because right now I'm I'm in the the zone of it's a good movie I like the way it was done it right. sounds like it was very well made um, I haven't hit the the geek out moments yet of oh and this this was done this way and this was done that way yeah it, it might have been just because I grew up with it you know like I, this was a movie that I had on VHS and I used to watch over and over again I had no no idea who Robert De Niro was at the time either like this was my first Robert De Niro movie. So this kind of, yeah. this movie like just introduced a ton of things to me. Oh, I remember one one more thing. Um, that scene in the church, where uh, you know Malone and uh, is, is kind of testing Elliot Ness, like how far how far do you want to take this thing? How far do you want to push this yep. thing? Uh, originally, that scene was supposed to be shot outdoors. He's supposed to say, you know, they're inside the cop shop, and he's like, oh, this wall, this this place, or the walls have ears. And they were supposed to go outside. But it was Sean Connery's uh, idea to actually put that inside of a church because he felt like Malone was a religious guy and, you know, he would feel safer having that conversation in a church. And it also Hmm. set up, you know, that uh, thing that he would carry in his hands. So, again, this was just another happy accident. They go, so they go inside and the, the church is very dark. It wasn't very easy uh, place to light up. So in order to get around that, what they did was they just stuck the camera on the two actors and didn't try to do any sort of shot outs, like put anything else in the frame other than those two actors. So if you look mm-hmm. at that shot, you got their hands in the foreground, 
them in the in the background. Then in the very back, it's just they just have lights on the back of the church, so you can see that they're in a church. And while they're sitting there with their their hands, the idea is that they're coming together, and it's like um, <clears throat> the top of the 16th chapel where God is touching Adam, and they're bringing life to this idea that they're going to take on the mob. So that's the idea with the hands in the foreground. So again, it's another, you know, subtle thing that's in this movie that you wouldn't pick up on, on your first viewing, but on repeat viewings, it's, it's there and sets up the whole, you know, chain giving, handing that chain over that Malone would carry all the time to the, um, uh, to Elliot Ness and then eventually to stone to Andy Garcia's character. Hmm. How many of Brian De Palma's movies have you seen that that you think are worth watching? Oh man, he's definitely had. Because um... I'm looking through his stuff here, and it looks like he's got some big hits, and then he's got some real duds. Yeah, there's some, there's some, definitely some clunkers. He, um, The Untouchables to me is is his best film. Scarface is good. Carlitos Way is good. Um... What else is there? I I and then there's a bunch that I'd like to see but I haven't seen. I hear Blowout's very good with uh, Travolta, but I haven't seen that one. Uh, Carrie, of course, that's good. That was probably his biggest hit before uh, The Untouchables. Um, geez, I I don't know. I can't uh, think of it. Wise Guys. It's got your guy Joe Pesci, uh, Joe Piscopo in it. Joe Pesci, Joe Piscopo in it. Your boy. Uh, why? Why? Where does this come from? You love him. You watch his movies all the time. No, I watched one movie you with him it in it all the time. You have them all on Laserdisc. No, I did like Raising Cain. That that was. Uh, I've never seen that one. That's with uh, Michael Douglas, right? No, that's uh, what's his name? Uh, Tommy's dad. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Lithgow. Lithgow, John Lithgow. Yeah. yeah, I've heard bad things about that movie. Every time I say, "Hey, I want to see that," people say, "No, nah, you don't want to." It's see that. it's odd. It, there are some parts that are really odd, but there are some of the technical aspects that, like, I still have vivid the images in my head of some of the camera work and stuff that was done there. So it, it has its. I suppose it's a little fifty-fifty, but I, I fell in love with the uh, directing style. He made a. Um terrible movie called mission impossible where people just rip each other's faces off <laughs> dumb movie uh i've never seen that one yeah. that's it well i guess uh scarface is yep. uh and carlito's way those are the ones i hear a lot about so maybe i'll check those out and carrie at some point. carrie's but, a good movie too okay i've never seen that yeah okay okay right. so uh the fun touchables good times fun touchables there you go thank you for indulging me on the fun touchables. No, I, was, I, I had been wanting to watch that for a long time, been meaning to, and uh, I enjoyed it. Great. So there you go. It, it made up for uh, the 40 minutes of Highlander I had to sit through. <laughs> I sat through the whole thing. <laughs> hey, but I, I, 10 minutes in, I knew what your opinion was going to be. So like, what's the point? Uh, I guess. I, I was rolling my eyes at 20 minutes. I was uh, ready to turn it off at 30, and I was just waiting for Connery to show up. People love it, though. People love that movie. Sarah was telling me of a, a, a kid that she knew in high school that was obsessed with that movie. And yeah, actually collected, high school. Collected swords. But even in high yeah, school, I remember I that. that. That's I remember. what I remember because my friends are really into this. And um, 
for some reason I had started getting these Bud K catalogs and it was all catalogs of knives and swords and lock picking sets <laughs> and we, you know, it would come in the mail and then we'd sit there and look through it and they're like that's the Highlander sword oh that's that's Connor's sword that's Duncan's sword and I'm like all right cool <laughs> Uh, and I remember that in one of the um, AVGN videos, he had the Highlander sword, and he he cut something in half. Yeah, see, like it's it's part of the lexicon. It's it's out there. People love it. Yeah, it's, uh... I suppose like if you asked me a few years ago what I thought of it, I would probably even without seeing it, I would say it's a really fun idea. But now, no. What it's is like, like what is the idea? It, I, it doesn't okay. make I, I sense talk, at all. I don't want to talk about that movie anymore. Forget it. All right. Uh, let's People just... like swords and trench coats. I That's guess it. So. Uh, let's start wrapping up the show. Let's say listener precipitation, precipitation, participation, precipitation. <laughs> listeners. Hey, if you listen to this and you want to talk more about the Silander, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, or the Untouchables. Head over to the forums on www.cartridgeclub.org. There'll be a special place right there in the forums for episode 13 of Retro Film Dango, where you can share with us uh, what you have to say. And, you know, we'll probably talk about it on the show on the next episode of Retro Fandango. Maybe. <clears throat> now we need to talk about the next episode of Retro Film Dango, episode number mm. 14. We used to have this stuff like I, way in advance, ready to go. Like we would have things planned out, I like know. five episodes down the line, written out on a piece of paper, all that stuff. But I have no idea. Now it's like we don't even think about it. No, we just wait till we do the show, and then it's like, oh yeah, we got to we got to think of something for the next episode. <laughs> uh, I've been doing a lot of Monty Python reading lately, so I would love to do the Monty Python films, the Holy Grail, Holy Grail, Life, Life of, Brian. of Brian, and what's the other one? Meaning of Life. Meaning of Life. That's the one I haven't seen. You haven't seen that one. Meaning of Life. Okay, I gotta see if I can. Do we want to have a guest okay. for that episode? There's got to be some Monty Python fans out there that have a lot to bring to the table about oh, these movies. Someone who, if you reach out to us, and uh, yes, I'm not reaching out to anyone. Here, if yeah. you want to be on the Monty Python episode, you reach out to us, and then uh, yeah, we'll do it. So if it's just Richard and myself on the Monty Python episode, episode 14 of Retro Film Dangle, you know that nobody cared enough to, to reach <laughs> That's out great to way us. to put it. Right? Nobody cared. They said, ah, I don't care. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, all right. That's it. Got anything else to say? I don't. Um, dang, look at that. Netflix has Monty, Pon- Monty Python's Flying Circus, Holy Grail, Life of Brian, No Meaning of Life. <sighs> of course. What's that's, up with that? That's like the cheapest Blu-ray hanging around, too. You can pick that up for like What's eight bucks. What's up with that? All right. I'll take a look. We made it through this episode. We, mm-hmm. we kept our heads. Oh. <laughs> if you will. Was that worth hanging on to? I saved it right for the end. (laughs) (laughs) This is the sound a doggy makes. Mr. Connery. Mole. No. Well, that's the sound your mother made last night. (laughs) Okay, that's not necessary. Sean Connery. 
Can you repeat the question? Of Simon and Garfunkel, the one that is not Garfunkel. I Garfunkled your mother. <laughs> Come on. Please. Uh, you were wrong, you Montebank. <laughs> I pose a conundrum to you. A riddle, if you will. I don't want to hear it. What's the difference between you and a mallard with a cold? One's a sick duck. I can't remember how it ends, but your mother's a whore. <laughs> well, 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 Trebek. Fancy seeing you here. It's been a while. Not long enough. <laughs> That's not what your mother said last night. Japan-U.S. relations. I have no idea what that category is doing up there. I had relations this morning, Trebek. Hope we didn't wake you. Your mother's a screamer. For your information, my mother's in a nursing home in Alberta, Canada. Oh, she was nursing it all right. Tom, let go of it. Let... No, not the jar. Let, let go... Let go of the pickle. But I, but I want a pickle. We, we can't keep playing if you don't let go of the pickle. That's what your mother said last night. <laughs>